come back to New World next week. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. I'm James Evan Pilato from MediaMonarchy.com. Dozens of national emergencies have been in effect for decades. We've got that story, plus students getting paid to catch diseases for the Republic of Scientism. But first, even George Harrison didn't think of this one for the tax man, James. New Jersey wants to tax the rain. Democrat New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy poised to sign a rain tax, and that is the hashtag that's been trending all week. Passed by the state legislature back on January 31st. The law allows each of the state's 565 municipalities to set up their own public stormwater utility. The new bureaucracies will build and manage sewer systems to treat pollutant-filled stormwater runoff. Under the law, the utilities can levy steep fees on properties with big parking lots, driveways, buildings, which create the most runoff because they don't absorb the rain. I think that's the logic behind this whole thing. Of course, the state will also scoop in to take 5% of all those proceeds. The idea for this new fee goes back to 2010 when constitutional lawyer and Nobel Peace Prize winner that just got millions for speaking to Boeing, Barry Satoro's Environmental Protection Agency, ordered states whose rivers and streams flow into the Chesapeake Bay, which is basically Maryland, Virginia, that whole area back east, to drastically cut sediment pollution. This is the sort of literal swamp of the District of Criminals, or if you recall, as Lisa Simpson called it, cesspool on the Potomac, James. But as far as New Jersey goes, it's it's pretty amazing. So before I throw it back to you, you know, I lived in Oregon for a long, long time. My brother actually lives in New Jersey. Those two states are pretty much the only two states in America where it's illegal to pump your own gas. And actually, Oregon has actually relaxed those laws a, a little bit. But those two states on the opposite sides of America both kind of keep pace of just ridiculous taxation. You've heard of this story, right? Uh, no, actually. This is the first I've heard of it. So, uh, But uh, <laughs> there's so many things. I mean, first of all, James, are you okay now that you're in New Mexico? Are you pumping your own gas? Are you able to do that? I am. I'm wow. Able to wow. Amazing. <laughs> and no explosions yet or anything? I mean, I, it's amazing. <laughs> I thought you needed government license to so much as touch a gas nozzle. Ridiculous. Um, but hey, it's the nanny state in action. And it's funny that you bring up the George Harrison reference, because that was, that was literally my first thought in seeing this story. I, you know, when it, if it rains, we'll tax the street. Uh, sidebar, best uh, guitar solo in the Beatles catalog. And it is by Paul, not George. But um uh, what a what a galling story on so many levels, and I mean, there's the obvious kind of in your faceness of the rain tax, <laughs> just the the galling nature of it. But but uh, even within the logic of the system and the nanny state system and the theft system that exists, it's still galling because, as people have pointed out, I mean, you know, there's been municipal roads for however many going on a century now and this has been happening all this time but now suddenly it's oh hey here's a new tax revenue stream we'll we'll tax this i mean it's the it's the arbitrary nature of it that surely has to flick that switch in someone's mind out there that you know it seems like they're just making this up as they go along and anything they can tax they will oh ping pong that's the idea uh, i don't know it just seems to me that even the most wide asleep normie must be at least a little bit there must be something ringing in the back of their mind on this one well <laughs> i'll send this over to my brother in new jersey and we'll see what he thinks about it <laughs> james our second story here on new world next week episode 366 is actually a two-parter 
Part one, next up on cures destined for the dustbin. Scientist cures HPV with non-invasive methods. Eva Ramon Gallegos, researcher from the Mexican National Polytechnic Institute, able to completely eradicate the human papillomavirus, HPV, which we've talked about here in the previous nine plus years of Neural Next Week. She's cured it in 29 patients. Scientific achievement was accomplished through photodynamic therapy. I'll include a link for that, a non-invasive technique that seems to be efficient method to prevent malignant neoplasm, which is the second cause of death, leading cause of death among Mexican women. Scientists from the National Biological Sciences explained that she studied the effects of photodynamic therapy for 20 years and said she treated 420 patients in Oaxaca and Veracruz with this method, as well as those 29 cured in Mexico City. Sounds like a fantastic idea. Invasive, not invasive but you can't patent it. And so it doesn't make a whole new profitable industry around giving deadly Gardasil shots for Merck, even, even giving them to teenage boys. So nope, that one's gonna go to the circular file, but the other one may be destined for World Health Organization approval. Students paid to catch diseases for the Republic of Scientism. Cash straps university students being paid as much as 3,500 pounds, that's in fiat, uh, UK currency to be infected with dangerous tropical diseases, including typhoid, malaria, and pneumonia. UK students among a growing number of healthy volunteers being paid to be infected with exotic bacteria and viruses for scientific research at institutes, including Oxford and the Imperial College London. The UK is a world leader in the study of infectious diseases and the experiments known as challenge trials, where human guinea pigs, mainly students, challenged with an infectious disease that have become popular as a way to progress the development of new vaccines at a fraction of the cost of all those field studies. So James, there's those sort of two stories that juxtapose each other. But I think with the second one, you know, people put CIA connected microphones in their living rooms or with their families. They send their DNA off to FBI connected family tree companies. Why not willingly let Big Pharma and their disease industry universities shoot you up? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. What could it hurt? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's a stupid idea. I don't think anyone should be doing it. But at the very least, at least this isn't some secret trial that they're secretly injecting you with some secret poison that you don't know about. Unless they are, <laughs> which actually might be the case. But but at least they're telling you up front, hey, you know, we're going to give you typhoid or whatever. <laughs> I mean, it, it could be worse. It could be the Tuskegee experiment part two or something. But then again, as I say, that might be happening in the back door. Who knows? Um, as long as it's out front and in the open, I still don't think anyone should be doing it. But at least they have some kind of informed consent to it. Some kind of informed consent. You'd have to wonder what kind of consent process you get for that, though. Anyway, as for the first story, I did hear about this recently because of a uh, video from TrueStream Media uh, recently that I'll put in the show notes. They actually admitted there's no money in curing people, which goes into this, uh, this exact problem. Oh, here's a cure, an actual cure for this HPV. No, 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 we don't want that. We want this Gardasil shot that we can charge people exorbitant amounts of money for. So uh, even though it's dangerous and it doesn't really work and it's uh, uh, it's just a cash cow, we're going to keep doing it because it's a cash cow. So um, unfortunately, that's the way Big Pharma is structured. No surprise to our regular audience, but uh, another one of those stories that you might want to run past the people in your life who may be a bit incredulous as to the idea that, what, there's actually cures for things? So I thought, oh, I thought we were just constantly in a state of sickness, and the only thing that will save us from being constantly on death's door is these wonderful 
non-cures from big pharma. Uh, no, actually there are real cures. It's just that you don't get to see them and they don't get hyped and you're never going to see it again because there's no money in it. James, there's been a, a bunch of recent stories, pretty gross stories about all the latest from Johnson and Johnson and all of their, you know, thousands of cases against a ton of their you know, faulty products. It gets pretty gross, I think, in, in a lot of ways. So for our third and final story here on New World next week, it is Valentine's Day, at least over here in the States. I could not find any sort of love-related stories here. So what we'll do for the third story here on New World next week, episode 366. Interestingly enough, now I got it from our buddy Doug Owen at Blacklisted News, but it sources back to ABC News. That's the American Broadcasting Corporation. You might know them as being owned by Disney. Not many things here in the States not owned by Disney anymore, at least as far as the infotainment world goes. But even Disney News knows that dozens of national emergencies have been in effect for decades. We have this conversation here in the States as we're looking at another shutdown related to the border psychological operation. Will he, won't he, Trump sign a national emergency. So given that discussion, this is why Disney News was looking into the story. And I think this is a really interesting one that maybe in some ways could just help sort of normalize all of this as it's become pretty normalized. According to the Federal Register, 58 national emergencies have been declared since the National Emergency Act of 1976 was signed into law by the good guy known as President Gerald Ford, you know, the, the Warren Commission report, all that, all that good work that he did there. 31 have been annually renewed and are currently still in effect as listed in the Federal Register. Now, Jimmy Carter got it all kicked off in 79 with one national emergency. That's, of course, about Iran. Now, interestingly enough, nothing listed at all during the Reagan, which was eight years, and in the even Poppy Bush. So that's, so what, you got... 12 years there of neither of those guys signing a national emergency. I find that pretty interesting. Then it kicks into high gear when we get President Bill Clinton with six. He kicked it off with one that combined two previous national emergencies, all about WMD. Really interesting kind of, you know, pro prologue there for us. Then he did one about Jerusalem, one about Iran, one about Colombia, Cuba, Sudan. So that's Clinton with six. Then after the skull and bone selection, baby Bush gets in and says, hold my beer, 11 from George W. Bush. Kicked it off with one in Macedonia. Then on August 17th, 2001, right around when they were ignoring the bin Laden determined to strike at America, there's one about export control regulations that's pretty interesting. Then the two biggies from Bush related explicitly to the events of 9-11. But then he's got one about Zimbabwe, one about Iraq, Syria, Belarus, Congo, Lebanon, and North Korea. That one renewed by the swamp thing just last summer. So then after that, the guy that added five wars onto Bush's two, he really dialed it back. Obama just did 10 national emergencies. Somalia, Libya, Yemen, Ukraine, South Sudan, Central African Republic, Venezuela, China, and Burundi. And then finally, my friends, he's already beat Barry at murdering people with flying robots, and he's at three emergencies and counting. One in Myanmar, one about Russian interference, and one in Nicaragua. So James, like I just said in the previous segment, we're already under dozens of emergency declarations from both Coke and Pepsi. So what's another one? Yeah, what's another one? Um, just one more on the list, I guess. Uh, this goes to underscore an important point. 
This is essentially government by national emergency. It's the national emergency state. I mean, governments require some sense of national emergency in order to further justify their rule over the people. You can't continually expand the nature and the function and the size and the scope and the budget of government unless there's a pressing concern. And if there's no war, or at least a, you know, a threatening boogeyman in your face with pointing guns at you, then... I mean, we got to find some way to get uh, to get these uh, these budgets moving. So, this is an important point about the way the U.S. government functions in this day and age. It also speaks to an incredibly important issue that I'm going to have to brush up on because it's been a while since I looked at it, at it. But it's the idea of the continuity of government planning that we know was heavily done in the 70s and 80s, um, as uh, Cheney and Rumsfeld were in various parts of the, the administration, the White House. Um, and then, of course, coming in in 2001. And then whatever happened in terms of continuity of government on 9-11. And that is an important issue. Um, was government or constitutional government suspended formally at that time in a secret operation or something that was never quite revealed to the public? What, what does the national emergency declared on September 14th, 2001 and renewed every single year since then. What does it actually do? How does that affect the function of government? What is happening behind the scenes there? I know that Dan Hamburg and Peter Dale Scott have covered this and talked about it and written about it at length. So as I say, I'm going to have to brush up on it. But if you're interested in that, you can go to the Corporate Report archives way back, interview 67 back in 2009 with Dan Hamburg, where we did touch on this subject. And I've talked about it a few times since then, but I think it needs perhaps a little bit more fleshing out. So uh, I will be will be this will be on the back burner thank you for bringing it back to into my uh, onto the front burner absolutely now remember you know bush in in 2001 which we just noted all this really kind of kicked into into high gear he was called the unitary executive this was up for debate and some bit of discussions as you know democracy dies in darkness as they say but really i think in in some ways to maybe boil this down a little bit the way that these work this is why when you hear about storms and things where the governor declared a national emergency, it's the magical words that push aside all the pesky constitutional bugaboos that lets them and their buddies at SAIC or 3M or Walmart or God knows what all kind of come to the table. So that's uh, an interesting question you're asking, James. Have we basically been under just a sort of charade since September 14th, 2001, and that when they decide, they'll basically go, yeah, you guys have been under martial law since September 14th. We, we just didn't want to say it openly because we thought you might freak out. That's the question. I look forward to your further investigations into that, James. I had a little bit of time off as my wife, who's been away on an extended work trip, was back into town for a few days. So I got to have some family time, fortunately, a little bit here before Valentine's Day. But also I got to do some media monarchy work under the hood, as it were. I updated my basically my subscription page, mediamonarchy.com slash join. Now has some of those latest places like Subscribestar and Bitbacker. James, as you said, I don't care how you support us just as long as you support our work. Coming up on nearly 14 years of making Media Monarchy, James. And nearly 10 New World next week. So uh, let's keep doing it again. Looking forward to next week. All right. Thanks, buddy. Take care.